good activities going on here tonight. Once again, we convene to join hearts and minds and hope to find some solace in each other's company and, of course, some cheap knob gags and pot shots at right-wingers along the way. Uh, I have swag tonight. I meant to hand it out earlier. I'm going to hand it out now. Uh, a couple of gentlemen that I really love. Well, by the way, if you're listening out in Proopcast land and you're a child, this is an awesome time to get out a lexicon or a thesaurus or any tiny dinosaur that you can get near you. Uh, you're going to need it tonight. Uh, uh, not, not because my vocabulary is so dazzling. It's just going to give you something to read during the parts you don't understand. Uh, and if you're an adult, this is an awesome time to uh, um, straighten the fuck up and fly right. I'm joking, of course. Do whatever you like. Uh, uh, I'm often on a show uh, that Chris Hardwick hosts, who is a gentleman and a scholar and uh, a wonderful comedian and um, playwright and a leading lady of the theater in America. And uh, there's really not anything that Chris Hardwick hasn't accomplished in his uh, uh, short career as a gymnast. And the thing is, uh, he's been lovely to me. Uh, I have the pull quote from him on my book, uh, which he gave me quite freely, and is the best pull quote ever for a book called The Smartest Man in the World. You'd have to be fucking stupid not to buy this book. Uh, in any case, I have a bunch of swag from the show. If anybody, uh, who's for Midnight Swag? We have a fan? that young person there. And then, uh, not quite as sexy, but uh, uh, Bill, who's a, uh, who goes by the Twitter handle of Jack Shutt, uh, made this for me. And uh, I'm, was, I'm uh, you know, it's, uh, it's the festival of Diwali, and part of that is getting rid of man bags. And uh, it's a very ancient festival, so if anybody wants the man, I noticed that lady over there didn't get a chance at the hero, if you don't mind. Thank you very much. I also have a couple of records here. Uh, I have a new album out called... We're going to start the show with advertising tonight, evidently. This is like a network fucking show now. Hello, everybody. This is Bob. How the hell are you for Chrysler Hope? You know, there's young boys dying all over the world to protect our freedom, but there's one thing I know for sure. Elky Summer. I have a new record out. Uh, it's called... Uh, uh, in the ballpark, yes, it's a record because uh, I'm holding it in my hand. It is an actual record, vinyl record, like you would play uh, any old time on a turntable and uh, like that. And in any case, it, it's uh, you can pre-order it on iTunes. But there are some vinyl copies, and we're selling them through a special thing uh, records uh, eventually on my side as well. And uh, I have a couple of copies here tonight. I'll chuck them into the crowd if you like. Or would anyone like to be generous and perhaps share? I know people who are sitting in the back are like, "What the fuck is this bullshit?" <laughs> Uh, everyone's very punctual here. This isn't a show where people show up late to, but uh, evidently you're going to need to come a little earlier than you have been before, uh, anal retentive cowboys, to sit up in the front when the swag gets handed out. I should do this in a more disorganized fashion. Uh, that would probably work better. Here's one more thing I'll give away. Uh, uh, that was. Uh, there's also a Doug Benson cup in that inside that Chris Hardwick pack. I didn't want to leave out mentioning uh, my very good friend, Doug Benson, who does... A surfeit, a surfeit, rather, a myriad. A sur I combined a surfeit and a myriad into a myriad of uh, podcasts. He does Doug's Loves Groovies and uh, Getting Doug with High. And uh, there's one where you eat with Karen, dining with Doug and Karen, I think that one's called. Then there's the Doug Benson Interruption. Uh, then there's the son of the Doug Benson Interruption. Then there's the abominable Doug Benson. Uh, then there's uh, Bleed, Dracula Bleed. Uh, uh, um, in any case, uh, he's a fantastic friend of the show, and there's a Doug Benson cup in there because I have maybe a dozen. And uh, I, have an, I can have an Alice in Wonderland tea party with my getting Doug with high cups, which I often do. And I have an imaginary one, and I have a little teddy bear. I'm not telling you his name. When's his loss? And um, he's from Jack. 
Um, this one I want you to hand all the way to the back. It's a very, very lovely book called Some Very Interesting Cats Perhaps You Weren't Aware Of uh, by a, a comedian. Yeah, well, the show's kitten-themed, as you know, and Kittens McCavish uh, heartily endorsed this book before the show. I didn't know such thing. Shut it. And uh, his name's Doogie Horner, and he's a wonderful comedian, and I've played with him many times on the road, and he's written several books. Uh, he's quite literate and uh, an absolute pleasure to work with. And um, almost ate a dope uh, cookie, unbeknownst to him, at the last gig we did together. Uh, I'm not, I don't eat a lot of dope cookies before the show because, um, as you know, I like to maintain a veneer of professionalism that's unparalleled in show business since the <laughs> late 50s. Uh, I think you'll find that the way they rehearse the Motown team is the way that I get into these performances here tonight. It may look like I'm improvising and slurring and falling over and knocking shit over and not knowing where I'm handing out things. This has all been planned like Lucille Ball over the course of weeks and weeks and weeks. I thought that would be funnier, but then <laughs> I got to work on a stage where Lucille Ball did the Lucy Show, which is the 60s incarnation of the show, where she has flaming red hair, and she's a working girl, even though she's probably in her 40s by then, and uh, she has a best friend, and she's single and whatnot, and uh, that's the one with, um, uh, oh, Mrs. Carmichael, with the fabulous uh, Gail Gordon, and um, one of the cats who'd worked on the show came on the set one day, and we were like, did, did Lucy improvise? And he went, oh, no, nothing. The Pratt Falls, everything, everything she did, the crying, falling, everything worked out, rehearsed over and over again so that it looked perfect. And I was like, I don't have that energy. <laughs> so for her focus, uh, Doogie Hunter has that kind of focus. And I want you to hand this book to the back of the room to some worthy person. Uh, this can't go to the front row. <laughs> It's not just a book. It has cartoons in it, so don't panic. I know this is Los Angeles, and giving out books in L.A. is like people are like, what the fuck? We wanted an iWatch. This eats the buttocks. Uh, no, you'll love Doogie's book, and uh, please patronize all these fine comedians, Chris Hardwick, and, uh, uh, or patronize, whatever the word is. Please patronize them. In England, if you go, you're being patronizing, they'll go, I think you'll find that's patronizing. Um, we're going to jump right in I have no time to waste My wife gave me this quote from Gary Indiana Who has a show going on in Los Angeles here now He's an art critic and author uh, that you should know And he wrote, uh, uh, many, he wrote books and uh, criticism And his criticism is quite, uh, quite pointed This one I loved uh, uh, I'm going to read this one first And then I'm going to read the longer one The misfortune to live in a country That means the United States That cares less about intellectuals Than it does about the ash content of dog food uh, I thought, yeah, that was reasonably trenchant. I travel because it takes my mind off contingent circumstances that surround me where I live, Indiana says from Berlin. Still, it's becoming more and more pointless to travel. Every place in the world's overwhelmed with tourists, and everything looks more and more like America. One might mistake this tone for defeatism, defeatism, defeat, for depressism, if it weren't for coming from an American in a borrowed flat in Berlin, fresh from Dublin, where he celebrated Colm Tobin's birthday, and from Mibria, where he, uh, at the incredible finca of a, a friend's mother. I'm too peculiar to figure importantly in anyone's life, including my own. <laughs> he was just staying with all those people, and they have him there because he's a wit and a wag. And an all-around uh, fascinating individual. That sentence, I thought, was uh, worthy of Oscar Wilde. I'm too peculiar to figure importantly in anyone's life, including my own. I often feel like a guest in my own life. I'm, I don't know if you do. You're walking around, and sometimes you feel like, did we, yeah? 
You know what I mean? Like you're on a bus or whatever, or you're on a plane or you're somewhere and you're like, people are bringing me shit. And like, is this really? Uh, maybe you guys don't. Every day with you is a ceaseless drudgery. I know that a lot of people at the show tonight work in the cane fields and that I uh, perhaps was talking a little out of line with my white privilege or whatever. I don't just mean it from a, an economic point of view. I, I, the, it does, economics has little to do with your personality uh, other than it can force ickiness upon it. Um, uh, I think you, a lot of people have the same personality, hopefully, when they don't have money and then when they have some money. Uh, I think people like this, uh, like him and Rene Ricard, who sort of lived hand to mouth, and after he died, all of his artwork started selling for millions of dollars, as my wife said to me the other day. He could have used that while he was alive. Um, there's nothing wrong with some recognition. As Bella Lugosi says in the movie Ed Wood, uh, he, he goes, Bella, they're using you. And he goes, let them use me. You know what I mean? At a certain point, that's why we're here. That's why we're here. We're all Bella Lugosi at the end. You know what I mean? Hopped up on the junk, laying in our crib, fucking imitating ourselves. And then the doorbell rings, and you're like, let's do this. Um, Indiana says near the end of I Can Give You Anything But Love, which might be why he figures so large in the lives of his fans, whether they're 50 or 60-year-olds came of age, with his work, or the re-emerging East Village art scene, which embraces him not as an elder statesman, but one of their own. There's nothing more important than that, and that, I strive for that every day. My one greatest fear is, of course, irrelevance, and uh, uh, with irrelevance comes uh, 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 elder statesmanhood, and with elder statesmanhood comes a shelf, <laughs> and with a shelf comes infrequent visits. <laughs> <laughs> it hasn't happened yet. Everybody calm down. Jesus Christ. A literary show tonight at the beginning. Uh, if younger people relate to my work, it's probably because I wake up every day believing I'm 13. I couldn't subscribe to anything more than that <laughs> sentence. I think it's imperative to believe you're 13. Uh, hang on. 13-year-old <laughs> with privileges. And... Um, <laughs> Like drinking privileges. My parents wouldn't have dug it if I drank when I was 13, but I don't think I'd had a drink when I was 13. When did you start drinking? I started drinking, I think, at like 15, 14 maybe, I had a drink. I mean, you have a drink when you're little because your dad gives you one or your mom gives you one, right? You're at a table, you're at a restaurant, you're at a family function, and they go, here, have this. And either it's, a, oh, take a sip and give it back, or it's a fucking have this and fuck off, in which case you drink all of it and you get really high because you're little and shit. And, then, and don't phone in the show or anything. I don't take phone calls. That's the awesome part of doing a podcast is you can phone the show all you like, actually. There is no phone to call. As far as I know, we don't have a phone outlet. Uh, although if you phone the filling station down at the end of Sunset here, I'm sure someone will come over. Uh, the, uh, um, I believe I'm 13. I'm not a middle-class bore. I say a lot of things you aren't supposed to say. I get in trouble for it. Maybe that's why a lot of people connect with that. That was in the LA Times. And then this one I thought was hilarious. And I, you know what? I've been to Boston this year. I did the Boston International Improv uh, Conflagration or whatever it was called. It was the proscribed. It was a very good event, and it was very well brought off. And uh, as a, a, a well, well brought off as a high-class, as a high-end consort, uh, it was how well brought off it was. And... Uh, 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 I'm still going to shit on Boston because it's hilarious. And here's, the, here's what Gary Indiana said. Boston, a mean provincial town with a heart of shit. <laughs> That's just horrible. I don't think I've even said they have a heart of shit. <laughs> they don't. People are uncommonly kind to me when I go there. And yet, still, you walk into a store and you go, Hi, how are you today? And they're like, What do you want? <laughs> That part always is like, wow, dude. I'm from San Francisco, as I said, where no one's friendly. Um, do you know a taco place? Yeah. 
me and my friends go there. <laughs> it's like being in the dick version of Apocalypse Now. You get <laughs> oblique conundrums and syllogisms and shit like that. <laughs> Is there a barbecue place near here? If there was, you could walk to it. <laughs> Hope you find it. <laughs> Hopefully there's still some people like that left. Uh, hi, Greg. Hi. People write me, fanmailforgreg at gmail.com. God damn it, who wrote this? Well, you're, you'll know who you are. Uh, I love what you, uh, the, what you do to the place in your first 100 days, but there are two things you need to add. I had the first 100 days of the Proof Dog Administration. Of course, the number one was the Equal Rights Amendment. Uh, we also had, a, not only was uh, marijuana legal, it was mandatory. Uh, the national anthem will be changed to any Aretha Franklin song we agree on before the game. We're going to vote before the game on the Jumbotron, and then that's going to be the national anthem. That night. You can see where my country is better than yours. And uh, it's not quite Marco Rubio's country. People won't have to work that hard. They're always talking about working so hard. Everybody's like, you work! Like, hey, if I like it, I will. If I don't, fuck you. Uh, right out of the gate, grant full pardons to Edward Snowden and Chelsea Manning. And while you're at it, give them medals of freedom. They're patriots and heroes. They deserve it. I couldn't agree more, and I'm adding that as 101. That's the 101st Amendment of the first day. Uh, by the way, six or seven of the first 100 days are me dodging being assassinated. Because <laughs> no one's going to like my platform. Uh, number two, after that, make Elizabeth Warren attorney general and give her the free reign to kick the shit out of the bankers that trashed our economy. That is an awesome idea as well. And I hope that uh, whoever's president... Hillary uh, does that, and um, once she's done that, if a spot on the Supreme Court opens up, I can't think of anyone else better to fill it. I couldn't agree more. Uh, you rule. I know. Thanks. Um, I think his name was Ron. It's terrible that uh, that was a complimentary one. We've been having a lot of trouble with the, uh, the copy boy uh, down at the editorial room today. I'm a, I mean... Look, I, the presses are running ceaselessly. That's why I smell this way. That's why I look rumpled and have ink all over my fingers. Uh, what I'm doing when I'm not here is amazing. And uh, 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 I, I walk by his, uh, you know, uh, his door. He's got a green glass door, the editor, right? And I go, Proofs, get in here! Right? And I have to fucking come in, and I'm like, <clears throat> what is it, Mr. Farkworth? And he's like, you know... Do you call this podcasting? <laughs> I've heard better podcasts in the grade school. It's horrible. So I don't know who wrote that one because the name got left off. When I say the name got left off, I cut it off. And I don't know how I did. I can't control my fingers and I can't control my toes and I'm a terrible editor. But other than that, I'm a tremendous performer in a lot of ways. Uh, and I believe he put this quote in too they who can give up essential liberty to obtain a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety Benjamin Franklin 1775 I believe he also said the French ladies ooh la la <laughs> uh, dear Greg this is from Edan pronounced Edon pronounced like Edon okay so I could say Edan then and go it was kind of like Edon <laughs> Edon. Edon sounds like a bitching new product or whatever. In the morning, it can be harsh. You'll hear a cricket chirp against a tree. While a yogi orange orb rises out of the dedicated mist that surrounds your home. That's when you need an Edon. So you can ease into the day 
Good morning, Bill. Those pancakes read my mind. First and foremost, thank you for doing the podcast. You're welcome. I love the show, and thanks for all the work you put into it. See? Someone fucking... I listen to this shit, you ink-stained wretch. Listen to the show at work, and it's become my favorite part of the week. So this week's episode of Grams, you talked about Jimi Hendrix playing Sgt. Pepper's Only Hearts Club Band Live. Um, that was from two weeks ago when we were in Bellingham, Washington, at Ryan Stiles Theater, the Upper End Theater, where they bring you fine improv every week. And uh, when we were doing it up there, I played this Jimi Hendrix track that I'd heard from long ago on another thing. Will you spin that Jimi Hendrix track? It's super fucking good. And it came out uh, two days after uh, Sgt. Pepper did. The Jimi Hendrix... Uh, yeah. You can turn that up a little. It's only like 40 seconds long. And then... Um, yeah, you've heard the Beatles version, and now you're like, hmm. Yeah, that, and then the theme song, Jimi Hendrix played my theme song right after. He segued into The Cow with the Cat. He uh, was so prescient in so many ways. A lot of people don't give him credit for it. Like, they'll be like, if he was alive today, uh, he'd be producing, you know, world music or whatever. I say if he was alive today, he'd be choking. Um, it's a terrible joke and here's my other bad Jimi Hendrix joke uh, they say I wrote, Jimi Hendrix uh, there was a biography about him that said he pretended to be gay to get out of going into the army um, I don't, that doesn't diminish him in my eyes whatsoever I pretended to be gay last weekend to get out of going to Home Depot so it makes no sense and it's a terrible joke both my Jimi Hendrix jokes are awful I'm the first to admit it and the last to know uh Jimi Hendrix played the song live at the Seville Theater, Saville Theater in Shotsbury Avenue, which was leased by Brian Epstein three days after it was released on record with McCartney and Harrison in the audience. Um, it would be one of the first gigs, and this is what Paul said. Uh, it'll be released the Thursday, so this was the ultimate compliment. It's still obviously a shining memory for me because I admired him so much anyway. He was so accomplished. To think that the album meant so much to him is to actually do it by Sunday, three days after the release. He must have been so into it because normally it might take a day for rehearsal and you might wonder whether you just open with it. It's a pretty major compliment. In anyone's book. I put it one and down of the great honors of my career. That's Paul McCartney. I mean, I'm sure he wouldn't have thought of it as an honor. I'm sure he was just the other way around. But to me, it was like a great boost. There's no definitive answer if John Lennon heard the cover. Um, finally, if you've never heard the longer version, then there's another link to it. Uh, and like that. Wanted to share this trivia with you. Thanks for doing the podcast. If Ohio does decide to legalize marijuana tomorrow, so you can see when it was from. It was from two weeks ago. No, they did not. Uh, Ohio did not decide to legalize marijuana. It was a very complicated issue, which we've covered on the last episode of Getting Dead with High. <laughs> I won't be covering it here. But let me just say that Ohio can be really fun, but it had the potential at one point to be super fun. <laughs> uh, uh, then you'll hopefully come and visit our state more often. Thank you for the invitation. Thanks again. Pronounced like Edon. P.S. To the NSA agent stuck having to read this email, hopefully you learned a new fact today. Now go tell all your coworkers. I'm sure they'll be shocked to hear read something interesting in an email that doesn't involve humiliating another human. <laughs> all right. Uh, uh, hi, Greg. That's from Jack. 
A fuck ton of people are going to tell you it was today, but when Jimi Hendrix covered Sgt. Pepper, it was only two days after the album came out. So already we've changed. <laughs> yeah? I, I have, I'm not reading them all. This isn't a stack of letters about this. But I did get this many letters about this. I, I didn't know when the Jimi Hendrix thing was recorded, and everyone who's ever heard of it has written me. <laughs> Mind you, no women have written on this issue. Because women understood that the important part was the feeling and the passion that Jimi Hendrix brought to it, and the fact that it was super, super sexy awesome, more sexy awesome than the Beatles one, who I don't think the Beatles ever played Sgt. Pepper live. By then, they were done playing live. So I don't think anyone ever fucking, other than the Bee Gees, I think, did it. <laughs> they fucking did. They did a whole movie called Sgt. Pepper. And uh, wow. <laughs> the Bee Gees beat up Aerosmith in the movie, so you need to reconsider your position right now. <laughs> and Earth, Wind, and Fire sings Got to Get You Into My Life. And that part's pretty swinging, man. That part is swinging. Because somehow it's a jazz number and shit. Of bum, uh, 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 God, it's really good. Uh, it was you that brought up... Oh, okay, here's another letter. Um, Steve, in this case, it's you who are the idiot for failing to take the time to understand Gregor's argument. I looked for whoever's letter Gregor was. A guy wrote me and said, we'd already settled the Billie Jean... Uh, the, the men are superior to women athletically argument because I was arguing that women could play professional sports alongside men and not have separate leagues. And the guy got huffy and uh, wrote me a letter that, you know, basically tried to... And I was cruel about it, I'll be honest. Um, which is, of course, what you want from me. Uh, I don't think anyone would listen to the show if I just went, you know, everyone's cool. Anyway. <laughs> I was eating this cake today. And... <laughs> but this person thinks I'm an idiot for taking him out. It was you who brought up Bobby Riggs and Billie Jean King when discussing how you thought women could play baseball. And complete athletically in general with men. Yes, it was. Used the 73 match. Bobby Riggs was well past the prime. We've covered all that. It was a media event. When you read Gregor's letter, you changed your original context to whether men and women deserve equal respect or pay. You changed the rules of the game to make him look like a sexist asshole and keep us from noticing that your original thought was, how should I say, wrong. This kind of mendacity is more appropriate from a presidential candidate. I think your many fans, of whom I am one, expect more from you. Well, I Kobayashi marooned the motherfucker. I'll, I'll grant you that. <laughs> Uh, but I think you changed the end game for your own means. Part of being a great convincing speaker is uh, taking any means necessary and making that work. Um, do I morally believe it? Of course I do. Was I cruel to whoever Gregor was or whoever his name was since I can't find the goddamn letter? Yes. Uh, am I going to apologize? Kind of. What I'm going to do is this. Let's agree to disagree that I wasn't as funny as I might have been. <laughs> and if you're going to use cruelty at least be great with it. <laughs> and I wasn't in that regard, and therefore I'm sorry. And I apologize if I changed the fucking tone of your letter or whatever. I still believe men and women can compete together. Uh, and uh, there you are. Um, you've done it again. Shelby Foote wasn't excoriating every civil war. This is from another person. Maybe that's James. Not Steve. Steve wrote this one. I'm confused Horton Foote and Shelby Foote. Horton Foote is the screenwriter who wrote Tender Mercies. Horton Foote also directed pictures. Horton Foote is Shelby Foote's cousin. Shelby Foote was a Civil War historian and an all-around author and a very great intellect. And I characterized him. I believe I called him a white supremacist on the show last week. <laughs> I'd like to address that. <laughs> Uh, Shelby Foote wasn't excoriating every Civil War Southerner. Every time he spoke on camera, you call him a racist because he has a charming accent. You booted this one. Agreed. Uh, Shelby Foote, of course, uh, went out of his way, and he's from Mississippi, where my family is from. 
uh, my mother's side, and uh, I shouldn't have done it. Uh, he, he went out of his way when writing the history of the Civil War to be even-handed about the uh, Union and not call it the War of Southern Aggression and not do all those things. And I was wrong about who I said. He said the two geniuses were. It wasn't Robert E. Lee and Nathan Bedford Forrest. It was uh, Abraham Lincoln and uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest. Um, let's see, well, the most brilliant at what they did without the benefit of any real education. He said nothing about their characters. Uh, Foote is also the commentator Byrne used to describe the brilliance and unflappability of Grant, and not insignificantly to remind the viewer that Grant was a drunk cliche was hogwash, certainly when it mattered, obviously. And uh, I'll go even further on the U.S. Grant tip, because I want everyone to leave this room in the next five minutes. Um, <laughs> Jennifer and I were in San Diego earlier in the year promoting my fabulous book, The Smartest Book in the World, and uh, uh, we were doing a podcast there, and we drove by the U.S. Uh, Grant Hotel in San Diego, and then that led to quite a deal of research, and of course his son had stayed there, he had stayed there. Grant went around the world after he was president and met as a diplomat with leaders as far away as Japan, Russia, everywhere, and was considered quite a, a sophisticated character. Did he like to drink and did he smoke cigars and was he profane? Yes. He was also uh, a statesman after he was a president. So there you go. In any case, I believe he wants me to apologize to his family. I don't think I have to go that far. This is a podcast. Um, <laughs> if you were listening and you're a fan of Shelby Foote or related to Shelby Foote, I apologize for saying he was a white supremacist. That isn't the case. Uh, and uh, I'm totally, I'll take the bat on that one. As for apologizing to his family, I'm not running for office. Uh, and I'm sorry. Uh, that I'm not running for office because if I was I would use this incident to boost myself in the eyes of my rabid supporters <laughs> after the show we're having a bonfire and there's a pamphlet I'd like you all to read <laughs> Robert De Niro I hope you heard this this week Robert De Niro was doing a, an award ceremony when they were giving Angelina Jolie this award and the cat who invented excuse me or co-invented was it um, Flickr and uh, the messaging app Slack, Stuart Butterfield, got up to introduce De Niro, and he fucked up. He was a privileged, entitled uh, IT guy, and he, and he looked around the room and he went, there's a lot of supermodels and moving stars. Uh, uh, we're a long way from San Francisco. And then he said, I watched Godfather 2 on the plane when you killed Don Finucci. I like that. So De Niro got up and said, whoever the last speaker was, I thought you were a bit condescending to us actors, celebrities. I'm going to go on record with you just to say that, and I don't give a fuck who you are. <laughs> That's fucking hilarious. I love going to the thing and going like, I watch Godfather 2, and De Niro gets on stage and goes... <laughs> and then, of course, he tweeted, De Niro, put, De Niro put me down! Like, yeah, that's the part you're not supposed to tweet. <laughs> that was where you were humiliated, but you didn't. Get it. <laughs> I was going to say we have to start the show, but I think we have to put the brakes on tonight. Uh, a fellow gave me this book uh, in Boston, Justin is his name, and it has an address on it that's from a dead person. Uh, not, they're not dead. They weren't dead when the address was on it. It's, uh, this was in the book, evidently. It's R. Solomonov. Uh, in Cambridge, Cambridge 38, Massachusetts. No zip code, that's how old it is. Um, and it's a book called The Beats, and it, a raw, penetrating stories, poems, and social criticism by Jack Kerouac, Norman Mailer, Allen Ginsberg, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, and many others, edited by Seymour Krim. Lawrence Ferlinghetti is still alive, by the way. 
uh, and still going strong. This is a poem by Philip Lamentia. I just wanted to throw some poetry in. We haven't had any in a while, and the beats always rock it, and this book is about to fall apart in my hands. Uh, my wife knew Philip Lamentia uh, somewhat from working at City Lights, and I met him at a poetry reading down here in Los Angeles that we went to uh, uh, that was really fantastic. And uh, let's see here. Put down of the whore of Babylon. Lamentia is a flame-throwing Roman Catholic and can really light up the poetic pinball machines one out of every four shots. <laughs> His whole bent is mystic, ecstatic, sensuous, dangerous, but when he hits, he hits for a high score. Sometimes the work gets vague and shrill, but the muses... The misses are what have to be suffered in order for him to get his rare charging highs, which sweep into the memory like an army of Christian neon lights. Hot stuff here, always a hair's breath away uh, from the front overstatement, but the real spinal shudder when he makes it. How about some jazz there? A uh, little, um, uh, you know, Monk or Miles Davis or something. I don't know. I don't have any. In a minute. <laughs> Spontaneity is so overrated. <laughs> I. That's a little peppy. That's a little peppy. Something. Thank you. This isn't a carnival, Ryan. It's a comedy show. Let's make sure the jocularity is served somberly and with an eye towards escape. I love that the first one you put on was I'll just yell comedy over that, shall I? Uh, if I emphasize some of the words a little too hard, understand that they're written in gigantic 30-point caps. <laughs> Put down of the whore of Babylon. High-voltage Myers got into her jaw as she devoutly lit up her spine in front of mammon. On the slopes of the Sierra Madre de Chihuahua, they dance night fires, cross themselves by mirrors, bloodshot, emaciated men who, they themselves tell us, fell from heaven, <laughs> dance like fires, eat bitter earth fruit, in a sense like manna, oh man! Oh, man, the spit of plant lice or black markets in a pearl at the unheard sound. For the wails of self-pity, for the hysterical salesmen of ideas, for the good-willed destroyers of words, these must be put down, for they're inside us and foment saccharine sweet whores like this one dancing to the tune of sly poisoneth health remedies that make my head exude dung that put saliva in my bones that dish out infinite possibility of the imago magpie of erotic ecstasies no 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 
not for this panic of idols. Coning our time by false angel clocks. But for the descended dove, we make it to live. That's Philip Lamentia, and the book has fallen apart. Thank you for listening to that. Thank you for playing that song, Ryan. You're one thing. <laughs> Jaded note from the booth. <laughs> Distinctly jaded note from the booth up there. I said, thank you for playing that song. And he went, sure. <laughs> Evidently, Ryan has been auditioning for the Dan Duryea part in several of the film noir movies of the 40s. <laughs> Later, he'll have a comic book and he'll go, <laughs> what's so funny, Ryan? Nothing. <laughs> 90%. That's the percent of your life you're in your underwear. I'm in my underwear right now, so it's not the other 10% of my life. Underwear gets old very quickly. You know the feeling of putting on saggy old underwear. It's to drag. You need to know about the feeling of great-fitting underwear that is two times softer than cotton. You need to know about MeUndies.com. MeUndies is the most comfortable underwear you will ever wear, and it's insane how good they make you feel. I feel a little crazy right now because they fit so well. They fit perfectly. They don't ride up, and they literally pull moisture away from your skin. So you stay inconceivably cool. I'm wearing mine right now, and I'm sitting on a velvet throne, and all I can feel is a light breeze underneath my equator. MeUndies is environmentally friendly. Really? Yes. The materials they use are sustainably sourced from the Austrian Alps, uh, and those are the sweetest Alps of all. They're completely natural. They also use a CO2-neutral process with a low-carbon footprint. They save water and energy due to their spun-dyed fiber process. And MeUndies isn't just for men. They launched their All of Me Women's Collection, a four-piece line of undies designed specifically for the female body in all of its grandeur. Check out the photos yourself, MeUndies.com. This quality would typically retail for two times the MeUndies price. Uh, not here, baby. No retail middleman means more savings for you. This is how it goes. Go to MeUndies.com slash proofs, P-R-O-O-P-S, and get 20% off your first order and free shipping. Save even more when you buy a pack of them. They guarantee you're going to be happy with them or your first pair is free. Once you feel MeUndies on your body, you're never going back. I thank you and everyone at the Greg Proops Smartest Man in the World organization thanks you. Peace. Now let's see. Let's move along. We've got way too much. Uh, a little bit on this one then. Um, a woman in Afghanistan, Afghanistan's first female conductor. It's from the BBC. Uh, an, a reporter named Shamai Khalil wrote it. Uh, for many years, the Taliban banned music and the education of girls in Afghanistan. And although many women still find themselves restricted, one 17-year-old has become the country's first female conductor. Uh, boys and girls, let's see, the female students have finished their first concert. Their male colleagues were watching. What's so special was uh, in the middle of the violence in Kabul, was led by the country's first female conductor, 17-year-old Negen K-H-P-O-L K-H-P-O-L W-A-K Pola, who was also a student here. Now she's retreated along a concrete corridor. Um, Kush Amadid, welcome, says Negan with a shy smile. Today my hands are aching a bit. I'm not in top form. All I want to become is a very good concert pianist and conductor, not only in Afghanistan, but in the world. 
Girls in Kunar don't get to go to school, and many are not allowed to study music by their families, so I had to go to Kabul to fulfill my dream. When Negin was nine, she, he sent her to live, her, his dad, uh, a children's home in Kabul so she could get an education. She auditioned and joined the institute. Uh, there's an institute that's run by... Uh, let's see here. With help from the World Bank, it says. Yes. Well, in any case, uh, this is a feel-good article, but I wanted to read it to you anyway because it's a vital import, uh, knowing what we know uh, about that part of the world and what's going on now and the absolute horror that's happening this week um, uh, in the neighboring country of uh, Iraq. Um, for a, a, a child, a teenage uh, um, virtuoso to be able to uh, lead a band and uh, um, be a conductor in a and a musician there is of profound importance. Um, she was chosen to represent the Institute on a Trip to the U.S., where she performed at Carnegie Hall in New York in the Kennedy Center, playing the Sarad. It was so amazing, it felt good, but I always wanted to become a pianist. Um, I was so happy, I cried when I got on stage and saw all the people in the audience. I want Afghanistan to be like other countries in the world, where girls can become pianists and conductors. You realize how profound that is, just to say that. Um, if you feel like the world is the way it should be, it isn't because there are places where women can't even consider that opportunity, uh, much less argue over uh, whether a woman candidate is better than a man candidate and things like that. As I said, it's a feel-good article, and it's written in that way. If you want to go on the BBC, uh, let's see here. And I'll give you the last paragraph here because it's good. Uh, when you become a famous pianist, can I come for free, or will I have to pay for an expensive ticket, I ask. Hmm, no, sorry, she have, you have to pay, she jokes. I say goodbye, promising one day to come to one of her concerts. And as we drive through checkpoints amid the noisy traffic, I can still hear Negan's beautiful music, along with the faint but still persistent promise of hope in Afghanistan. Uh, yeah, well, that's journalism, right? Uh, journalism of a kind. And uh, the World Bank's mentioned in the middle, which kind of panicked me a little bit. <laughs> but there you are. Uh, this is from the LA Times. Religious children. Here's a discovery that could make secular parents say hallelujah. Children who grew up in non-religious homes are more generous and altruistic than children from observant families. This is one of those fantastic internet things that goes around, but it was in the LA Times and I couldn't help but bring it up since I'm so often bringing up religion and saying that um, Jesus is a fictional character and things like that. Uh, however, I don't fall down on the Richard Dawkins, uh, 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 Christopher Hitchens side that, that much. Um, I think that any fairy story that you can believe in that helps you get through the day is fucking useful uh, at the end of the day at a very bottom line level here. Uh, do I believe in organized religion and that you should follow it? That's my uh, uh, opinion. No, but um, I wouldn't dissuade anyone from doing it if it made them fucking feel better, if you know what I mean. Uh, in any case, having given that uh, namby-pamby fucking vanilla uh, fucking forward to this, um, <laughs> let me just say that uh, when people uh, bring it into secular life, such as when they're running for fucking national office and leader of the free world and shit like that, and all of a sudden decisions are being based on God, and uh, people like Ben Carson, who really do fervently believe in this bizarre system of things that don't have a lot, make a lot of sense to me, and yet people simply nod and go like, he's really popular, and it's like, yeah, we need to check into that whole element. Uh, um, the fact that he's popular is unsettling. The fact that he's allowed to continue is ridiculous uh, in this day and age. I'm here to tell you, uh, as someone who's uh, been through a lot of president the first one I voted in was 1984 uh, I was too young in 1980 to vote for president oh no I voted for president in 80 I voted for Carter against Reagan uh, that was during the um, hostage uh, thing that didn't happen in any case uh, so that's how many I've been through and um, wow um, even Reagan in all of his Reaganitude 
Um, the, the field around him was a bunch of reasonable Republican. So a lot of whom were rich people who didn't really care about this or that. Um, and the party swung to the fucking tire swing element so hard that it's made you guys go quiet. <laughs> Perhaps tire swing was a trifle harsh. I don't wish to only come down on economically deprived people who believe things. Um, it's the people who uh, support the dominant paradigm, of course. That, in any case, let me just dive into this. A series of experiments involving 1,170 kids, blah, blah, blah. 5.8 billion people consider themselves religious. How did they find that statistic? That's what I love about newspapers. There's, what, seven, six, seven billion people in the world? They went around and shit? <laughs> I know that uh, all politics are local and everything, is, uh, everything revolves around me in Los Angeles. But if you asked yourself, everyone you knew, including all of your relatives who live back in, the, in uh, I'm guessing from this crowd, Oklahoma, uh, uh, all of your relatives, how many are religious? A bunch of them would be. But really, would it be uh, 5.8 billion people in your world that are religious? I think you would go at a certain point. Some people are, and some people... It's often taken as an article of faith that religion promotes, promotes altruism. It is, but only by the general sweeping, overarching, nonsensical, uh, fairy tale fucking um, story that we've been fed ever since we were children and ever since our parents and their parents, 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 parents were children. Um, it, religion is supposed to promote altruism. I think that was the original intent of getting people on board. That and that uh, um, there, there, there was some hope after this world because you weren't going to have any fun or any comfort in this world. The next world, however, was going to be awesome and there was going to be cake and cider and shit. <laughs> but uh, I've never believed that to be true, that uh, religion dictates altruism. Um, uh, you know, I, I find that people who are altruistic sometimes are complete assholes. And um, such is the world, right? Uh, such is life, as Ned Kelly said when they put the noose around his neck. Um, among the 20, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, they broke up this group and they had Christians, Muslims, Jewish, Buddhists, Hindu. 0.2% were agnostic. Out of 1,170, I can't do that math. Um, they showed each collection, each child a collection of stickers. They had them do all these different things where they had to share and shit like that. In any case, the results, uh, the Muslim kids judged the offenders more harshly, followed by Christian kids and then secular kids. Well, I don't think that's a surprise to anyone, and I'm not even putting the Muslims first. Um, obviously, people who really believe to a giant belief system are going to judge other people more harshly than people who are like, I don't care what people do. <laughs> when that's your creed, it's kind of like, well, you know... Um, in any case, the, the study was funded by the John Templeton Foundation, which su supports scientific research on spirituality, and this is my favorite part of the article, and other, quote, big questions. <laughs> we live in L.A., and this article is in the L.A. Times. Here's the two big questions. Can I validate... <laughs> and does this taco stand always on this corner or does it move because <laughs> I want to come back here but I came back here two weeks ago and it was another place it was a pierogi place <laughs> uh, Ben Carson wrote Jennifer sent me this and Facebook post late Wednesday this is, it'll have been a week this, this uh, podcast will have gone out uh, about mm, six, five, six days after the last Republican debate, of which I'm not going to discuss. We gave far much, too much time to uh, um, Admiral Akbar and the entire cast of the Republican. 
Jeb Bush has completely descended into Admiral Akbar hood at all points now. <laughs> I would fire upon the rebels. Fire upon them. <laughs> would you kill baby Hitler? <laughs> this is what Ben Carson wrote. Dr. Carson. Every signer of the Declaration of Independence had no elected office experience. Okay. This has a Palin-esque, Bachman-esque ring about it. You may remember Michelle Bachman was like, the French helped beat the Mexicans during the Civil War. And Sarah Palin said, what was it, Paul Revere was ringing them bells? (laughs) Paul Revere did many things. One, uh, an astounding line of... uh, uh, um, Dishware, which is fantastic. <laughs> Secondly, he was uh, captured by the British. They put a gun to his head, so he never even finished his ride. It was Dawes who did, as you know, uh, and uh, was a patriot and all that jazz. Um, one thing he never did was ring a bell. Because you see, he was stealthily riding along in the dead of night trying to alert villages. <laughs> so ringing a bell until he got to. Because the English waylaid him between two. <laughs> As Gina Davis says uh, about law in the movie Thelma and Louise, history's some tricky shit, man. <laughs> One person's fact is another person's fucking imperative. Uh, ben Carson said, what they had was a deep belief that freedom is a gift from God. Well, let's just discuss the Founding Fathers. Um, the journal pointed out the historical inaccuracy Thursday. Thomas Jefferson, Sam Adams, John Hancock, and many other signers of the Declaration of Independence held elected seats in uh, colonial assemblies, obviously. Benjamin Carp, an associate history professor at Brooklyn College, told the paper, also, many of them weren't religious at all and were what we might call agnostic, if not completely atheist. Um, The country wasn't built on that. Yes, every president has been a Christian of some kind, even if they were a Catholic. And Joe Biden is a Catholic, by the way. He was one, as Will Durst so brilliantly said, uh, green M&M away from the presidency. Is it funnier if I say chicken bone? (laughs) The thing about this show is, it's not so much that on the night, it's that later... When I'm dead, you'll talk about this show so much to your friends and shit. You'll probably write a position paper on this show when I'm dead. Think about it, you guys. Watch closely, children. This is how history is made. So I'm joking, of course. Jesus Christ. Carson said this about the founding fathers. He also said this week that the pyramids were a grain storage area that Joseph had. He'd said it 18 years before. I know the whole story. He doubled down on it again. And the best part was he said, my personal theory is that Joseph used them as a grain store. I assume he meant Joseph from the Technicolor Dreamcoat Joseph. (laughs) Not Joseph, Jesus' father Joseph. Or uh, uh, Joseph Campanella, who used to narrate the National Geographic shows. (laughs) Who I met once at a voice audition, and I went up to him, and Jennifer will attest to this. She'll back me up on this. I went up to, she was there with me, and I said, Mr. Campanella, I think you're terrific. And he went, uh, so do I. 
That's how Joe Campanella spoke, man. He had a beautiful voice. The Komodo Dragon. <laughs> ben Carson said he was invited to West Point. He wasn't. He said he had dinner with General Westmoreland. He didn't. He said he tried to kill someone. He might have. Who knows? Uh, he's, uh, he's reached for the moon, is what he's done. Uh, credulity and uh, uh, um, you know any kind of veracity um, an idea that a presidential candidate might want to have I don't know trustworthiness and gravity at any point during the election seems to have escaped uh, the entire fucking argument right now and that's what uh, leaves me so wobbling down the lane like a poorly pitched bowling ball by a left handed person while under the influence of absinthe <laughs> I'm twirling in a centrifuge of my own making uh, at the idea that we're still listening uh, to Dr. Carson at this late date uh, knowing what we know uh, about his um, for instance when I was a child uh, uh, Senator McGovern, who was a war hero, ran for president, and um, he had to switch um, vice presidents because one of his candidates, Thomas Eagleton, who was standing for vice president, had had a record of mental illness. Well, he owned up to it, and he was quite an intelligent, uh, sentient person. Ben Carson doesn't own up to any mental illness. He simply wants to present this weird delusional front where... Uh, let me just go into it for just one second. The pyramids were built by a society that had the most rigid rules and the most predestined fucking ability to write down the reason why they did everything they did <laughs> in an endless calendar that believed in the infinite and that believed in a cosmology that was beyond our comprehension as modern people. And on the walls of the pyramids are clearly stated <laughs> why they were built for whom. <laughs> and recently, as you know, We've discovered who built them. The workers' areas have been discovered. All their food stores, the records of how they were paid. It was made by highly fucking trained and brilliantly educated engineers who were able to manage this enormous project over the course of several generations. The water came up to a different level in those days, and obviously they were able to float blocks, or maybe not obviously, but one theory is they were able to float blocks up. It holds a lot more water than um, it was a grain store for Joseph. That's like saying that the Washington Monument was a 7-Eleven built for Marion Barry so that he could go in the bathroom and listen to Parliament, okay? It's all fucked up. Eight ways from fucking Wednesday. The Rocky Mountains are a storage area for John Denver's hashish. But ever since John Denver met his untimely demise, it's been taken over by Joe Walsh. None of it makes any sense. Imagine being Egyptian and having intelligence and feelings. And hearing an American politician on telly repeat and repeat that he thinks it's a grain store when you know that the history of your country is the most vaunted of all fucking... <laughs> Other people quaked in fear at the majesty that was the empire of Egypt and their belief system and their animal gods and their fertility and the fact that they were the grain store for the ancient world for some several thousand years is a not inconsiderable achievement even in the light of today's awesome Flickr app. <laughs> and that a presidential candidate would say that my theory is 
Really? I have a theory, too. I think that General Grant killed Bigfoot in a van driven by John Lennon <laughs> on his way to a Yaz concert. <laughs> yeah, someone fucking went, yeah. Uh, Rand Paul misquotes the country's founders in his books and speeches so frequently that Andrew Kaczynski, a, a reporter for BuzzFeed, that's where we're at, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> not the New York Times, not whatever, I don't know, not that the New York Times is so vaunted, but BuzzFeed. They're, they're as likely to be as accurate as anyone else, quite frankly. We're down to individual credibility, I think, with reporters and reportage. Uh, who's been asking, fact-checking Rand since 2013, published a letter asking the senator to stop using fake quotes. Paul dismissed Kaczynski as a partisan hack, and this is the best part. At the helm of a, quote, ridiculous cottage industry out there of people who think they're smarter than everyone else. I live in a cottage. I have a pink picket fence. Part of it's rainbow. I, uh, I think I'm smarter than everyone else. Ergo, the name of the show, the name of the book. It's a joke, of course. I don't, actually. But I do think I'm smarter than you. In so much as I don't give out fake quotes. I attribute everything I read on the show. And I don't make up history. St stuff that I read is usually fairly grounded in however many facts I can cling to, however many white guys wrote it. Um, <laughs> saying that there's a cottage of industry of people who think they're smarter than everyone else cuts to the very heart of the matter. It's not so much there's an ideological divide. It's, it's that there's two mindsets. And one is that one side thinks that intelligence isn't a negative. <laughs> and the other side feels that intelligence is a threat, a weapon, and a bludgeon that's being used to dismiss my ideas that I thought of, that I don't have the fucking, uh, whatever the reason is, the wherewithal, the, the research to back up. I just know how I feel. And when you start in with you're smarter than me, it makes me feel bad about myself. And to me, that's how it seems to break down. Rand Paul is not an unintelligent human being, but he's playing for that team. His hairdo alone is so shockingly fucking Robert Reed and the Brady Bunch circa 1972. It is so loose. It's not Leo Sayer loose. But it's Harry Chapin-esque. She was going to be an actress and I was going to learn how to fly. Uh, there is no cottage industry of people who think they're smarter than everyone else. There, if there was, I would, I would be in it. <laughs> I would be leading that. I wouldn't be in the comic book store. I'd be on uh, uh, NPR. <laughs> and by that, I mean public radio. <laughs> Please cut this part out. <laughs> I'm doing Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me in January, and I don't want to fuck that in any way. Never mind. <laughs> Ted Cruz was asked to list five agencies he'd cut. He listed the Department of Commerce twice. <laughs> Why are we cutting agencies? I've got an agency I'd cut. The Defense Department, down by fucking two-thirds. You know what I mean? Um, there's money for everything. And chicks for free. As uh, I believe it was Diary... Uh, Diary Strayatis. 
that Greek group from the 80s. <laughs> Was that the worst song of all time? It might, it's up there. Well, Eye of the Tiger, I heard, which I heard today, by the way. Why did you hear it, Greg? I, uh, I go to Burbank Airport in my off hours. And uh, if you've ever been to Burbank Airport, you know that it's all 80s all the time there. The one thing that can happen to you at Burbank Airport that's so dangerous, I, last time I was there, it, it happened to me. I got blinded with science. <laughs> Marco Rubio said Americans should stop stigmatizing vocational education. Who, who, who's stigmatizing it? Fucking vocate. Let's do this shit. I'm all for vocational. You know what? The problem is no one knows how to fix anything, especially at my house. <laughs> Jennifer's handy. Like, she can fucking fix a thing or whatever. She'll go like, will you hold this? And I'm like, hold what? And then she's like, the end of this thing. And I'm like, it, it's got water on it. Um, it's like the Wicked Witch. I... <laughs> you cursed brat. Um, Marco Rubio said, welders make more money than philosophers. <laughs> That's hard to even check. <laughs> do you walk up to a philosopher and go like, so what, what do you, what do you, what do you pull in? <laughs> and then go up to a welder and go like, are you union? Uh, why, why is it important or even an issue this is the kind of and this is why I feel like I can't fully understand what's going on um, I believe that things are askew more than they've ever been but I may be quite wrong and everything might be exactly the way it should be and that this kind of logic and a presidential candidate saying welders make more money than philosophers and another one saying that uh, the pyramid stored grain for Joseph of his Technicolor dream coat <laughs> is, is how people are thinking and I'm completely off the fucking deep end here. We need more welders and less philosophers. The crowd cheered. Well, clearly. Because... If your sink's fucked, or if uh, two pieces of sheet metal come disattached, you can't quote Kierkegaard. You can't just walk up to a fucking ball joint and go, the self lies outside the self. Nothing's going to happen. I believe it was uh, Tone Loke who said, that's what happens when bodies start slapping. And doing the wild thing. <laughs> None of this makes any fucking sense. Uh, we're going to switch right to the end here because we have a lot to fucking do. I have so much in here, but I'm not... Oh, no, I'm skipping. What the fuck is that? That was funny. All right, I can't find anything. No, I can't. It's at the end here. Uh... We're going to play some jams here for the rest of the show because this is what's going on. Oh, one, one more thing, and then we're going to that. Um, Justin Tru uh, Trudeau was um, elected Prime Minister of Canada. and um, He uh, uh, awesomely uh, uh, appointed his ca uh, um, cabinet about a week ago. And uh, it's 31 members in his, uh, Justin Trudeau's cabinet, 15 women. That's all I have to fucking say. Yeah. I realize it's slightly less than half. 
But no American has ever put that many uh, women in the cabinet. And he said, because it's 2015. He also made a Sikh the Minister of Defense. So the Canadian Minister of Defense, when he goes to meetings, is wearing a turban all the time. He's a decorated general. He fought in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, he's a, a highly, highly uh, praised individual and uh, will be an awesome Minister of Defense. Um, he's also Justin Trudeau, um, um, vowing to make marijuana legal in Canada in one fell swoop, right? Uh, which would fuck up a bunch of states in the United States. As you know, North Dakota and Montana, uh, there's lots of states up against the uh, Canadian border there. And what are they going to do? What are they going to fucking do? They don't have money to put armed guards up 24 hours a day. We can make end runs in the middle of the night in a 54 Studebaker with a baggie. We're going to fill the trunk like Cheech and Chong. We're going to make a bumper out of weed. Stacy Keach has the best line in the movie. God damn it, I'm high! Here's the list. We'll just rush through it. Uh, we'll just do the women, shall we? Carolyn Bennett, Indigenous and Northern Affairs. They have a huge issue in Canada um, with the murder of Indigenous women. Uh, it's been going on for um, years, and it's a scandal there. Uh, that's something they have to get to the bottom to of immediately. Um, let's see. Jody Wilson, Raybould, Justice Attorney General of Canada. Judy Foote, Public Services and Procurement. Christia Freeland from Ontario and International Trade. Jane Philpot, Health. Uh, Mary, well, you never know in, in Canada. Someone named Mary Claude Bebo might not be a woman. <laughs> it is, though. Mary uh, Claude Bebo, international development uh, and law francophonie, uh, in charge of uh, uh, the French and um, Melanie Jolie, heritage. Diane Le Boutelier, the national revenue. Uh, Catherine, uh, Catherine McKenna, environment and climate change. Uh, Marianne Michuk. Uh, um, employment workforce ha the, their defense minister by the way is named Harjit Sajjan uh, Miriam Monsef Carla uh, Qualtrough Kirsty Duncan, Patricia Haju um, is, the, is her ministerial post is the status of women uh, and well done Justin Trudeau, he didn't just talk the talk, he fucking walked the walk the minute he got into office, it was a hard fought election in Canada, I was up there for the last couple of weeks and I met um, one of the candidates, uh, the NDP candidate, and uh, Mr. Mulcair. I'd met Mr. Trudeau previously. No, I'd never met Mr. Harbour. Um, and I, I realized that talking Canadian politics to you guys is like, I might as well be speaking Esperanto right now. But there is another country up there, and it's quite close to us. And believe me, if they legalize marijuana, you will hear about it in the news. You may not have cared about their uh, cabinet, but I think he did a wonderful job. Um, Making someone a defense minister who's going to wear a turban to every defense meeting around the world uh, sends a profound message, I think. Um, because, as you know, in the United States, anyone with a turban is Muslim, which he quite isn't. Um, uh, Alan Toussaint, Alan Toussaint um, passed away and is swirling in the stars, uh, um, making the heavens way more funkier. And as someone wrote me, is uh, having a shrimp poor boy dressed, a po' boy dressed, and a cold, cold beer. Uh, let's play that first one. Um, Alan Toussaint is a songwriter, a musician, a mensch, a humanitarian. Um, Jennifer and I saw him just this year uh, in London, about three months ago, and he was in... Or play, play uh, working in a coal mine first. He worked with a, a guy named Lee Dorsey, who you might know from the Beastie Boys song where uh, Ad Rock says, everything I do is funky like Lee Dorsey. Uh, Lee Dorsey was a New Orleans uh, musician and a boxer. And um, 
Alan Toussaint wrote with him and made a bunch of records with him. And um, when we saw him in London in June, he said, I still write for Lee Dorsey all the time. And this is his famous hit. Play this for a second. Anyone heard this in this room or are we all too young? Okay, come on. When he sang it in June, um, the whole crowd did the whoops. It was so awesome. Uh, play the next one to you. This one's Irma Thomas. Uh, uh, he wrote this for Irma Thomas, who's the Queen of New Orleans soul. If you don't know this one, you'll recognize it maybe when it gets a little bit into it. It's so dreamy. Professor Longhair was his influence, right? Who was a stride piano player from New Orleans. And um, his parents recognized his genius at an early age, like Mozart or whatever. By the age of 10 or 12, his dad was like, you're a genius. Because uh, he started arranging records around the house. He didn't learn to read music. He started picking out tunes on the piano that he heard on the radio and whatnot. And by uh, a certain age, by fifth grade, he was already playing. And they were like, mm. And so uh, they supported him. And uh, we were watching a documentary last night that Jennifer was showing me about Alan Toussaint. And he goes in the documentary, I wasn't as much as a rebel as other people I'd heard about because I actually liked my parents. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we don't uh, always promote that on this show, but to hear it is beautiful. And uh, for him, it worked out completely. When I saw him with Jennifer in June, it was the confidence and the... um, Assuredness, the not cocksure, just an absolute comprehension of what uh, singing about love meant in a pop song. Like that jam you just heard, when it got to the thing and it went da 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 da, everybody went <laughs> because everyone's felt that way. And I think he had that kind of fantastic universality without the overbearing, uh, uh, overarching reach of other songwriters or producers, Phil Spector, whatnot. He, he was able to um, come in from below with a series of really brilliant artists, uh, like Lee Dorsey and Emma Thomas and whatnot. Um, uh, Dr. Johnny, uh, the Meters, he, was the, he produced the Meters for years and years and years, who are the funkiest band in the world, but did so many instrumentals that their shit's understated. Um, what's the next jam on there? Uh, is it the... 
Yeah, the, okay, so I'm from San Francisco, and the Pointer Sisters are from Oakland, and I was a kid when this came out, and they wore 40s dresses. Yeah, play, go ahead and crank this shit up. Uh, the platform shoes with the grapes on them and shit, and the fucking hats and whatnot, and the, uh, the 40s dresses, and um, this was a huge record for them that he wrote, and that was probably the first time I heard of him when I was like, I don't know, 13, when this record came out, because... He didn't produce this record, but he wrote this record. And it's uh, all about, like, equality, which he sings about quite often. And there's an enormously long fucking intro. If I was an FM DJ in 1972, I'd be like, From Oakland, California, the Pointer Sisters, here's Yes We Can Can. Because <laughs> you have to speak right up to the time of There's a 70s phrase. Will you turn it up just about 17 notches? <laughs> just this one, yeah. Gosh almighty. That's fucking lyrics. If anybody out there is a songwriter and you're thinking about how great your lyrics are, you haven't written great gosh almighty into a line yet. Uh, what's the next one? Boss Gags? I'm going to play this one for a little bit because I had occasion to meet Boss Gags about a year ago and uh, he's 70-something and uh, uh, unbelievably cool, right? And he had a giant disco record called Soak Degrees in 1977 and he did an Alan Toussaint uh, jam on it. And Alan Toussaint's probably been able to buy a house off of this record because Silk Degrees sold like 20 million copies in the days when albums sold copies. Here, turn it up. And when he, when he played it in London in June, he went, Boss Skaggs did this song, and I was very glad he did. Strings, right? Here, turn it up really loud with the majesty of this disco. Alright, moving on. I told you this was going to be long. I saw him to this year, and I think he's a worthy artist, and he doesn't quite get the credit that he deserves. What's the next one? Robert Palmer? This one is really good. Uh, Robert Palmer did an album called Sneak and Sally Through the Alley. And I didn't even... Just, yeah. Just turn this really loud. So, okay. 
try it. He played this one when... Oh, it's just so good. What's the next one? We'll move along and then the... Yeah, Glenn fucking Campbell. (laughs) This was an enormous hit. (laughs) You're scoffing. But we have Taylor Swift now. She was a country star. And she made it as a crossover star. Glenn Campbell was a, a, a crossover star who made it as a country star. And when I saw him play in like 88 or 89, I saw a Glenn Campbell concert. He fucking played this song in the place went that shit. It has nothing to do with Alan Toussaint's version. But I want you to... When we get to the... It's, it's a brilliant pop song uh, Because it can't be destroyed we, Yeah, turn it up um, Does it sound like the Bee Gees or what there? This is pop music on a boat. You're having a beer. Am I wrong? Jimmy Buffett's richer than you are. That's all you need to know about this version of this song. It's corny. I have a soft spot for that record. What's the next one? Uh, shrimp Poor Boy. Oh, Shrimp Poor Boy. Can we go back for one second before we do that? And we'll end on, we'll get toward the end here. Um, I wanted to play you one more. Uh, you know who Dr. John is? He's an amazing uh, New Orleans man. Uh, he, uh, Alan, he, they work together. And uh, uh, Alan Toussaint didn't write this song, but he produced this song. And I just wanted you to hear his touch with producing. He also was the arranger of uh, uh, Lady Marmalade that Bob Crew did with uh, LaBelle, right? So this is the breadth and scope of Alan Toussaint's career. But I wanted you to hear this record because it's super funky. Will you play the Dr. John? It's super loud. This one's so 70s. I think it was like 12. No one would ever do guitars like this now. The county fair with the fucking uh, Arctic Whirl or whatever. They play this song. Do you want to go faster? Do you want to go faster? Do you want to go backwards? They would play this fucking song. I can smell fucking candy apples and onions. Alright, 
let's get to him. Uh, that record's just amazing. Jesus Christ. A lot of you are like, Craig, this has been kind of long tonight. And uh, we're hoping for humor and shit. But uh, there's a 12-year-old out there who's never heard fucking I was in the right place and just went, got up and danced in their blanket fort right now. Perhaps had a small wet spot or an erection. Don't think about it. Don't think about it. Let the Pope deal with that. Play the intro to Shrimp Po' Boy and then a little bit of Shrimp Po' Boy. This is from 2009. He went back to New Orleans. He lived there. He had to be forced to leave. He moved to New York. New Orleans, but the world is small these days, wherever we are. Good night. Um, you guys have been extraordinarily patient and awesome. Well, uh, you've heard the Glenn Campbell version, and now this is his version. You've been extraordinarily patient and awesome tonight. I really appreciate you coming out. Uh, we had a, the wonderful gift from a, a tycoon of this fantastic uh, glass so that I wouldn't have to drink out of the solo glass. He said he couldn't bear another night of watching me drink out of a red solo cup. <laughs> And of course, Michael Gonick, our friend, has given us the usual. And uh, I want to thank everyone for coming out tonight. And uh, uh, if you have a chance to listen to anything Alan Toussaint uh, had a hand in, um, it would behoove you because um, you've heard a little of the magic tonight. And uh, he's just a thing, uh, an artist that made the world better by being here. And uh, we're so very happy that he's in heaven tonight. And uh, like that, uh, thank you very much for coming out. Uh, you've been the smartest crowd in the world. I've been the smartest man in the world. May every page that you turn me a satchel page may be public green. We have Bill Papa Bell, and if you have to buy bonds, make sure they're Gary U.S. bonds. Thank you very much for tonight.